Hey, if you got a Bible, Matthew chapter 27, we're continuing this series called Stranger Things, where we're looking at some of the more bizarre stories in the Bible. A little sermon this morning called Thriller. It's going to be fantastic. We're actually going to read a story that you're all probably likely familiar with. Even if you have no church background, you've never touched the Bible, we're going to read a story that you've probably heard. It's the story of Jesus being crucified. However, despite your familiarity with this story, we're going to read a couple verses that I can almost guarantee you're going to be like, wait, what? Didn't realize that was in there. The old zombie in the Bible, chestnut, a tale as old as time. Okay, to that point, let's get weird. Matthew 27, verse 45. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. At about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Or your translation might say, forsaken me. Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. Some of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so he could drink. But the rest said, wait a second, let's see whether Elijah comes to save him. Then Jesus shouted out again and he released his spirit at that moment. The moment Jesus dies, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, rocks split apart. Here's where it gets weird and tombs opened. The bodies of many godly men and women who had died were raised from the dead. They left the cemetery after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city of Jerusalem with Jesus and appeared to many people. The Roman officer and the other soldiers at the crucifixion were terrified by the earthquake and all that had happened. Like people raising from the dead, they said, this man truly was the Son of God. God, thank you for your word We are asking you to do now what only you can do and speak to our hearts. Give us attentive spirits and open minds. Help us understand all that you would have for us today. God, just be with everything that's going on uh, with technology. We know that you can control even that. So just please help everything to run smoothly for the rest of our service. Again, be with us as we try and become more like you. We ask all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Shortly after Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492 and discovered the island of Haiti, the Spanish and later the French began enslaving the native population. Uh, By the early 1600s, most of the indigenous people who had lived there were killed either by disease or sheer brutality. So with much of the workforce decimated, uh, these landowners began capturing and enslaving people from Africa in order to work these sugar plantations in Haiti. Now their treatment was no better. The slaves, in their minds, the only escape from this life of servitude and these sugar plantations was death, which was seen 
as a return to Africa, or what they called Lan Guinea. This is the phrase that even now in Haitian Creole means heaven. It is a leafy green paradise with no sugarcane to cut, no master to serve, whereas the plantation meant a life of servitude. Lan Guinea meant freedom. Therefore, death was, for many slaves, not only expected, but wished for. Not surprisingly, suicide was a frequent recourse for the slaves. They were handy with poisons and powders, and taking their life was often the only way they felt like they could control their body. And yet, the fear of becoming a zombie stopped many slaves from taking their own life. In the Haitian Creole belief system, a zombie is a dead person who cannot get across to Land Guinea. Heaven is off limits to the walking dead. So to become a zombie was a slave's worst nightmare. To be dead and still alive, the eternal field hand. Now, it's theorized that this belief system of zombification was manufactured by slave drivers on the plantations. Oftentimes, they were voodoo priests hired by plantation owners to keep the uncooperative slaves in line in order to warn those that are despondent to not go too far because plantation masters thought suicide as the worst kind of thievery. It deprived them not only of a slave's service, but also of their property. And matter of fact, to keep this ruse alive, these voodoo priest plantation masters, they would uh, sometimes use a neurotoxin to drug slaves. And this neurotoxin would cause these people to breathe heavy and walk all weird. And they couldn't talk and their pupils were super dilated. And in the 1600s, it looked like what we today would call a zombie. It was a very powerful motivator. Obviously, zombie lure has drastically changed from then until now. Zombification is perhaps more glorified now than it ever has been in the world's history. Most of the credit that I found goes to a guy, a movie director named George Romero. Beginning in 1968 and over the next 15 years, he would direct three Uh, films that have acquired a cult-like following. And really, you don't need to look any further than our very own CDC in this country. You can go to their website and find a zombie preparedness page. Seriously, look it up. And uh, to bring matters even closer to home, you don't need to look any further than former Governor Sam Brownback, who in 2014 signed a bill proclaiming October to be Zombie Preparedness Month. Because I quote, If you're prepared for zombies, you're prepared for anything. Now, as absurd as it sounds, I actually kind of like that quote because not only do we have in our text a zombie-like resurrected dead, but shortly after Jesus is, uh, shortly before Jesus is murdered here in Matthew chapter 27, he told his disciples, therefore you also must be ready or prepared for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And so I can't help but wonder if God hasn't brought all of us here this morning to remind us to be prepared, not for a zombie apocalypse, 
but for his coming back again. Which I promise we'll talk about this weird, random fact that Matthew seemingly just throws in out of the blue uh, that people rose from the dead the moment Jesus dies. But first, let's chat about this idea of preparation. How do we prepare? Jot this down if you're taking notes. Care for what Jesus died for. Care for what Jesus died for. If you want to be prepared for when Jesus comes back and raises all the saints and all the people from the dead, then care for what Jesus died for. Now this begs the question, well, what did he die for? And I'm glad you asked that question because we actually see in this text three specific examples and reasons why Jesus died. Number one, we see that Jesus died for our souls. Not ourselves. We don't need to care for ourselves as much as we care for our souls. I feel like I need to make that distinction because this life isn't so much about you emotionally as it is about you spiritually. And the most selfless thing that you can do is take care of your soul. However, most people uh, in life are way more concerned about how they feel than how they live separates Christianity from every other belief system is that we as human beings were created uniquely by God. We are the only part of God's creation that has been handcrafted, made in His image. We are not some random act of evolution, but rather intentionally made by God with distinct purpose and nature. And we have a soul. Plants are complex, but they do not have a soul. Animals, although very personable, do not have souls. You know this if you are a cat owner, those soulless (laughs) monsters... (laughs) There is a reason it is called purgatory. Come on, somebody. I worked hard on that. That was so good. I don't care who you are. That was funny. But uh, seriously, uh, Jesus did not have to die for plants. He did not have to die for animals. He died for us. And in the same way that God is spirit, so our spirit is a reflection of God's character. We were designed by God to reflect His image to the rest of creation. It's why Jesus says in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven that the most important commandment is to love your Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. In other words, we're supposed to be mindful of our souls. Now here's the problem. We've all made decisions that will harm our souls and we do that by loving things more than we love God. This is what is described in the Bible as sin. It is dishonoring God by preferring his creation over him and we act out on those preferences. So even though God might give specific commands in the Bible for how we're supposed to live life, which is His complete right to do, since it was kind of His idea, we still do whatever we want because we want to be God, even though we have no idea what will actually give us our best life. 
It reminds me of taking my kids to the nut, nifty nut house the other day, which if you've never been, do yourself a favor tomorrow between 10 and 530, go tell them Landon sent you. They'll have no idea what you're talking about, uh, but it will be a kind of fun trick because when you leave, they'll be like, do you know Landon? They'll ask all their coworkers. And you're like, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. But uh, Laura and I took our kids there and let them pick out whatever they wanted, which the selection is vast. Any kind of candy you can imagine, obviously nuts and snack mixes and chocolate and fudge. And Lenny walks out of there with gummy worms. She's three. She has not lived long enough to know there are better things out there. The same thing is true with you and God. He's got all this stuff for you to enjoy and experience. And you could have had a double dipped chocolate peanut. Instead, you know, you're choosing gummy worms. Uh, And God's like I was with Lenny, all confused because there's so much more out there. And so if you could be honest with yourself, I wonder, how are you doing at taking care of your soul? I guess, let me ask it this way. Do you love you the same way God loves you? Because I've met a lot of people who claim to love Jesus and hate themselves. And the way they talk, and the way they dress, and the way they communicate, it does not reveal love. It reveals self-loathing. Which is why it's important for you to understand what Jesus did on the cross. And understand these words of Peter when he describes it like this. He, Jesus, Himself, bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By His wounds, you have been healed. That's what it means when you hear Christians talk about being born again. It's being healed. It's putting sin to death. It's understanding that uh, you'll get when you realize God is not trying to keep anything from you. He came so you might have life and have it to the full. Yeah, you know what most people's problem is? They're willing to substitute uh, satisfaction for immediate gratification. And it's a, it's a horrible trade, like trading gummy worms for double-dip peanuts. Except if we learn anything from this passage, is that sometimes the best stories come after the worst suffering. Verse 46, Jesus says, uh, it says that Jesus in the midst of His suffering... He calls out in a loud voice. This is particularly compelling when you understand that the loud voice here in the Greek language is never used anywhere else in the Bible. It literally means scream. Jesus screamed. This is problematic for many people. It's troubled many scholars throughout the years because it certainly looks like at this point, Jesus broke. He gave up on God. He's saying, God, you failed me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One of the commentaries that I found helpful said this, If you were making up an account about the death of the founder of your faith, and you were trying to promote that faith, you would never put such unheroic, disheartened, 
hopeless, despairing words in his mouth as his last words. You would never do this. In other words, it's such a problematic statement that almost for certain he said it. Almost for sure it really happened. Jesus screams to God. It's important for you to understand because Jesus went under and endured infinite suffering out of his infinite love for you. And the fact that he's screaming tells us something important is happening. And it's not that he's screaming about something physical. He's not screaming, my hands, my hands, despite the fact that there are nails being driven through them. He's not screaming, my feet, my feet, despite the fact that every time he has to breathe, he has to push all of his weight up onto the spike that's been driven through his feet. He's not screaming, my head, my head, despite the fact that moments earlier he had ramrodded through his scalp into his forehead a crown of thorns. He's not screaming, my back, my back, despite the fact that they've whipped him repeatedly with what they call a cat of nine tails that have little bone fragments on leather straps as he's whipped. They're just pulling the flesh right from his back. He's currently nailed to a tree in the same fashion that you would put a picture on your wall, and he doesn't say anything about that. He also doesn't say anything about the emotional suffering that he is currently going through. All the people who were supposed to be close to him, his disciples, all but one has fled the scene. You got all these soldiers making fun of him. You got these brothers talking about, let's see if Elijah gets him down from the cross. He doesn't scream about the betrayers, the deniers, or the deserters. And up until this moment, if you read the entire story, Jesus has been unbelievably calm. Almost never opens his mouth. So when he starts to scream, this is something else. This is something beyond physical pain and emotional suffering. This is a spiritual suffering. And when the darkness came between noon and three, it is symbolic of what is happening to Jesus in his soul. God was turning his back on his son. He was, as Peter told us, bearing our sins so that we could be made whole. It's why it's such a big deal that you learn to love yourself spiritually and take seriously this idea of being more like Jesus. Maybe this would be helpful. I once heard a guy say, you can't be sinless, but you can sin less. So how are you doing with that? Plus, I think something else is happening here. If Jesus died for you and you and you and you and you and you watching online and really all of us, then he didn't just care for your soul. He also cared about everyone else's soul. It's why when he was asked about the greatest commandment, he said you need to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And he said the seconds like it, you need to love your neighbor as yourself. That is to say, if you want to care for what Jesus died for, you need to care for each other. We must also care for each other. Isn't it remarkable and worth noting that Jesus never performed a miracle for his own benefit? He always did miracles to help other people. If I were God, if you were God, we would always do miracles to help ourselves. 
for sure, I would have never walked anywhere. Okay, I'm just telling you right now that we would have teleported anywhere we needed to go back then. And you're like, wait, aren't you running like 32 miles here? And didn't you just say that? I never said I liked it. I said I was going to do it. It's just I'm stubborn more than anything else. But I can tell you for sure we would have never waited in a line for anything. If there's anything good that's come out of COVID, it's the fact that nobody's going out to eat, so I don't have to wait in line anymore. I can just get right up to the front. And I also don't have to worry about anybody, uh, you know, I could walk into the restaurant and everybody's wearing a mask and gloves. It makes my heart feel warm inside because I don't have to worry about them coughing on my food or using, you know, disgusting ingredients and hands. And anyway, what was I talking about? If I was God, I would do miracles for myself. I'd speak food into existence. I can guarantee you right now on that mountaintop, it wouldn't have been five loaves. It would have been some five guys. Come on, somebody. (laughs) Cheeseburgers for everybody. And the disciples would have been like, what about this fish? And I would have rebuked them and said, get behind me, Satan. We have some cheeseburgers over here. And 2,000 years from now, people are going to kill each other for Shake Shack. And you should be happy that we got have a little respect, disciples. But Jesus never did anything to benefit himself. Even on the cross, Jesus was focusing on others. He first forgives all the people who did this to him. He extends eternal life to the criminal hanging next to him. He's thinking of his mother, says to John, the only disciple who stuck around, hey, take care of my mom. Then he bears the sin of the entire world, breathes his last breath and his miracle at the moment of death excuse me, is to raise the saints from the dead. These textual zombies, the thriller of the first century, which is fair to wonder, did this actually happen? I mean, how many of you prior to coming to church today didn't even realize this was in the Bible? Uh, It's a very random text. And so I don't ever remember hearing about it growing up. And we certainly weren't coloring the pictures in kids' ministries of zombies walking out of the graves. And so we we got those for your kids this morning. So that's not true. But uh, I like the argument that D.A. Carson makes. He says, one wonders why the evangelist Matthew, if he had nothing historically to go on, did not invent a legend with fewer problems. In other words, the sheer fact that it's problematic makes it more likely to have happened. And just so you know, we've actually discovered uh, 12 documents, early documents from different church fathers who all wrote about this event. And one of them, uh, all of them, excuse me, all 12 of those documents date back before the New Testament was even canonized. So I'll share just one with you. It's a guy named Ignatius. He is a contemporary of the Apostle John. So alive at the same time Uh, The Apostle John is alive. He was a bishop at a church in Antioch, a church that Paul started, this guy works at, and he's writing a letter to another church to encourage them, and he says this, Therefore, endure that we may be found the disciples of Jesus Christ, our only master. How shall we be able to live apart from him whose disciples the prophets themselves in the Spirit did wait for Him as their teacher. And therefore, He who they rightly waited for, having come, 
raised them from the dead. For says the Scripture, he's talking about Matthew, many bodies of the saints that slept arose, their graves being opened. He descended indeed into Hades alone, but he arose accompanied by a multitude. Point being, there's no reason for us to try and explain this event away as false because it's hard to understand. And it is a perfect example of how Jesus uses his power to help others. And if we're going to care for what Jesus died for, then we have to care for each other. Which it doesn't mean you have to be close friends with everyone. Even Jesus had different levels of friendship. In Luke 10, you can read about him sending 72 disciples out. So 72 people close enough to him who followed him faithfully enough that he would send them out on a mission. And yet we read on that he's got 12 apostles, so uh, men so close to him that he entrusts to them even greater responsibility. Then he's got the three disciples underneath that, Peter, James, and John, who get special access to him. And then he's got even three other friends, uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, that anytime he's in their hometown, he goes and hangs out at their place. And because of his love for them, he even raises Lazarus from the dead. So maybe the best advice I can give you with with regards to caring for others is that having a clear understanding of where people fit in your life will help you clarify your expectations of them. It's a big deal because all frustration is born out of unmet expectation. And so if you know where people need to fit in your life, you're not going to be frustrated uh, by them anymore. And maybe the most caring thing you can do for someone is to cut them off. It's what Jesus. Uh, it's what God did to Jesus, and it. I mean, I don't want to take that too far because He was doing that for a specific purpose, and it's the whole reason the world went dark. But even Jesus Himself said to some Pharisees uh, in Luke chapter four, "Well, when Elijah was on the earth, he didn't feed all the widows; he just fed the one. And when Naaman had leprosy, he was the only one that got healed. It wasn't all the others that had leprosy. And so, uh, listen, some people aren't bad; they're just bad for you." And you need to understand who they are. And so you can care for them without being close to them. And even though you disagree with them, you can still be unified under the mission of God as believers in Jesus. Which is why, number three, Jesus died for unity. And so we need to care for unity. He created one church with one mission and Even Jesus was spiritually separated from God so that we could be united to God. We get this in verse 51 where it says the temple curtain was torn into from top to bottom, which is an important distinction. So it's uh, monumentally important for you to understand what the temple is and what the temple communicates. And if you went to the temple in Jerusalem at this time, all you would find were barriers, barriers everywhere. And if you were a Gentile, you could only get so far into the temple courts. And if you were a woman, you could get a little bit further, but even then you had to stop and they had a uh, court for women. And if you were a Jewish male, then you could get even a little bit further in. But even at that point, there was a curtain that wouldn't allow you in unless you were a priest. And oh, the priest, if you're a priest, then you get to go all the way into the presence of God. No, because even the priests, they're 
there was a holy of holies and they would only the high priest was allowed in there and only even once a year. And the holy of holies is this curtain that's 60 feet high. And so the fact that it's torn from top to bottom, big deal, God's tearing it. It's so thick that it's almost soundproof, 8 to 12 inches, they believe, thick and uh Back then, uh, before the Nazis and Indiana Jones took it, that's where the Ark of the Covenant, it was stored in there, but behind the, uh, the curtain. And that's where God's presence dwelt at the, in the Ark, on the top of the Ark of the Covenant in this Holy of Holies. And what does the temple tell us? No access. You're not allowed. See, the temple tells us no matter how hard you work, no matter how many times you sacrifice, no matter how much penance you make or how much money you give, you'll never get all the way in. There is always a barrier. And when Jesus dies, the veil is torn and it's saying the way to God's presence is open. No more barriers. Jesus just made God's presence a Waffle House. And anytime you want to come and ask God for anything and talk to Him, He's always open. And as I look around at our culture and in our world, I don't know that there's any more important message that needs to be communicated than this one. The fact that you matter to God. And so you need to take care of your soul. And you matter to us as Christians. And so we want to help care for you. And you don't have to pray a rosary and you don't have to follow the pillars of Islam and you don't have to know the tenets of Buddha. You can go right to God, the author, hindrance-free because of what Jesus did for you. That's great news. We could use more great news in the world today. Yet like most things in the Bible... There's something else happening behind the scenes that I need to show you. Not because I'm an expert, but because this is what you all pay me for, and I want to feel like you're getting a good investment. (laughs) And so if we look at these words of Jesus, Eli, Eli, Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you look at that and study that, you'll realize that Jesus is actually quoting Psalm 22. So think about that. Even as Jesus is hanging on the cross, he's still meditating on the word. I would encourage you this week to go read Psalm 22 in its entirety. For the sake of time, what you really need to understand is that Jesus is always clinging to the words of his father. This is Jesus' whole secret to life. When he's in the wilderness being tempted, he quotes the Bible. When he stands up to proclaim the Word of God and his mission in uh, the temple, he quotes Isaiah. Even when he's preaching, he's quoting the Old Testament. So what we see is when Jesus didn't feel like there was any hope at all, when he didn't feel like there was any point to anything anymore, when he didn't feel like God was even there, when he thought all was lost, he held 
on to a passage of Scripture which utterly contradicted his feelings, contradicted his experience, contradicted his senses. Because if you read the end of Psalm 21, 22, it's a complete transformation of everything that happened in my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He let Scripture supersede his experience he let scriptures surpass his senses he let uh, scriptures overshadow what he thought and what he felt and as a result he quite literally faced hell with his bible and if jesus couldn't get along without his bible might i submit to you you need yours you can write it down like this the parts of the bible you believe are the parts of the Bible you do. The parts of the Bible you believe are the parts of the Bible you do. And you can rail against that, or you can truly find joy and hope in studying it. So I'll tie all this together with a neat and tidy bow in this way. The reason it's important that Matthew records this specific event for us. The reason it's important that Matthew throws in this random sentence about saints rising from the dead the moment Jesus dies is because roughly 600 years before this event takes place, the prophet Ezekiel wrote these words in Ezekiel 37, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. So the reason I can be confident in this story and the reason I can be confident in caring for what Jesus died for and the reason I can be confident that Jesus is going to raise me from the dead is because He's done it before. And like Paul said, if he didn't, we are of all people the most to be pitied. So call me crazy, but I'm just going to do what Jesus did. And I'm going to believe in the Bible. And I'm going to do what it says. And I'm going to love God. And I'm going to love people. And I'm going to take care of my soul. Because it's important. Every head bowed, every eye closed. God, thank you so much for your word, the power contained within it. God, if we could just feel the weight of what you're trying to communicate, that you beat sin and death, that you made a way for us to be put alive and into your presence at any moment we want. And it's all contained within the person and work of Jesus. God, thank you for everything that you have gifted to us. This world is huge. The experiences and joys that we can find in it. I'm reminded of how C.S. Lewis says sometimes we're fiddling around in a mud puddle when we have the whole ocean out in front of us. God, forgive us where we've fiddled around in these things of life, thinking that they would bring us pleasure, thinking they would bring us satisfaction, when the reality is we can only be satisfied in You. Forgive us for trifling with gratification. Help us understand what can be found in You. 
Make us new, transform our lives, make us more like your son, Jesus. It's in his powerful name that we pray. Amen.